It's good to be with so many familiar faces, to be with people who, many of whom I've known for a number of years. I want to talk this evening on the theme of awakening in a time of crisis. We know that there are these many crises that are the backdrop these days, quite something, the pandemic, crisis of racial justice, economic crisis, climate crisis, uh, crisis of democracy in many ways, uh, the fires. Um, there are also crises that are not as much on the front pages. There's a very significant deepening crisis in terms of world hunger. So it's a lot. It's a lot that we hold, even if we're not consciously focused there. And we may sometimes think that we have a choice. We can either focus on our practice and maintain some degree of calm or drop everything and try to help with this crisis or that crisis. And maybe we do the first. We focus on our own practice and our own calm and we may feel escapist. Or we may be impacted also by the crises and feel anxious or overwhelmed fearful, confused. So we may also mostly drop our practice and try to help in the world. And we may, as I'm hearing from many people, pay a lot of attention to what's happening, sometimes in a sense too much, and also feel anxious or fearful, overwhelmed, confused. Or we may do a little bit of both. We may do some practice and try to help some and also feel those emotions and, and states. So what I want to suggest is that the times are calling for us to do both and to do them deeply. That's what I want to explore this evening. This is from uh, the venerable teacher Thich Nhat Hanh, 94 years old now. This is what he talked about in uh, 1991, about his experience in Vietnam and the, particularly the 1960s. When I was in Vietnam, so many of our villages were being bombed. Along with my monastic brothers and sisters, I had to decide what to do. Should we continue to practice in our monasteries? Or should we leave the meditation halls in order to help the people who were suffering under the bombs? I think somewhat similar apparent choice as to... Uh, like the one we have now. Should we stay in the meditation hall or should we go out? 
He said, after careful reflection, we decided to do both, to go and help people and to do so in mindfulness. We called it engaged Buddhism. Mindfulness must be engaged. Once there is seeing, there must be acting. We must be aware of the real problems of the world. Then with mindfulness, we will know what to do and what not to do to be of help. And so something I think is being asked of us, something more, I believe. It's a situation in which the, maybe the intensity of the situation is calling forth for many of us more awakening and more awakened action. And for many of us, it's leading us to shut down as well or to give in to extremes and fear and polarization. There's a tendency towards, uh, I think, both. A lot of possibility of awakening, a lot of possibility of shutting down or going to the extremes. Happens in many similar situations, has happened historically. We can see situations where things get so polarized. And so I think what we need especially are people who are deeply integrating inner and outer practice and deepening in both of them. That our own formal practice is not really enough. And that uh, social action without being guided by spiritual principles and practice I would say is inadequate for our times and will tend to perpetuate our problems. So this is from the teacher Angel Kyoto Williams. She says something similar. For us to transform as a society, we have to allow ourselves to be transformed as individuals. For us to be transformed as individuals, we have to allow for the incompleteness of any of our truths and a real forgiveness for the complexity of human beings and what we're trapped inside of so that we're both able to respond to the oppression, the aggression that we're confronted with, but we're able to do that with a deep and abiding sense of, and there are people, human beings, that are the other side of that baton or that stick or that policy that are also trapped in something. They're also trapped in suffering. And for sure, we can witness that there are ways in which they're benefiting from it, but there are also ways, if one trusts the human heart, that they must be suffering. And holding that the core of who you are when responding to things has that kind of insight. That's the way, the only way we really have forward Otherwise, we just replicate systems of oppression for the sake of our own cause. So we need both that practice and we need to be engaged in a very meaningful way. And there are also cycles. Sometimes we do more of one or more of the other. 
I'm contemplating, I don't know what February will be like, but I'm contemplating a month retreat in February. So there's cycles. We go in, we go out. It's not meaning always, you know, always bringing together the in and the outer. Sometimes we do more, we go more in one direction. And I think our times are both intense, but there's also a creativity. And so something I think is being asked of us, and we're also asked to really touch our own depth so that creative energies can flow. So in that context, I want to talk some about awakening and then some about engagement in the world and how, and how the two go together. And with reference to our own choices. And I, I believe that focusing on awakening is crucial now to hold the vision in difficult times of a deep inner peace, of love, of compassion, of non-reactivity, of equanimity, the vision of what's there at the depth of our being, a sense of interdependence, a sense that at our depths, we are this vast loving awareness in which we're not different and not separate from anyone or anything. It's so crucial to hold those perspectives when there's difficulty, when there's craziness and turmoil. And so touching awakening and deepening an awakening and actually making a commitment, a strong commitment, maybe stronger than we've had so far, to awaken is crucial. That's what I'm suggesting. In the traditional path of awakening, we come out of ignorance. You know, the understanding of awakening as taught by the Buddha is that we cut through our habits and our ignorance. We, you know, the liberating insights are talked about in some different ways, but typically it's understood as insight into impermanence, into the nature of dukkha. I like to translate, as you know, as reactivity, the way that the mind is compulsively going towards pleasure and away from what it doesn't like, the way it's on a kind of a treadmill of reactivity, the way we're like that much of our lives. And so awakening is to see that clearly and to move beyond it and to see the nature of the self, the limitations of a sense of self as separate, and to touch what's called the deathless, to touch Nibbana or Nirvana, to come to that. You know, and later traditions kept on with this understanding of 
what liberation or freedom or awakening is. And that's the traditional understanding. What's interesting, I think, about our times is that while those aspects of awakening may be still right at the center of things, I would say certainly the path of awakening is different in our times than the traditional path. And there are elements of liberation, freedom, cutting through ignorance, which are different in our times. And you've probably heard me talk in this way, you know, in uh, past times we've had together. You know, in other words, I think there can be a sense that the path of awakening has an evolutionary dimension. It's different now, I believe, than the traditional path. And what's, what's different? I would say that we work with that traditional sense of awakening to impermanence, dukkha, anatta, not self, to the deathless, to nibbana. But some of the path is has different elements. I would say that we, you know, very simply speaking, we also, as part of our path, we learn to awaken to our own what we might call psychological and personal ignorance. Another way to say that is we see and work through the uh, habits and patterns and confusions that were developed in childhood in the family context. We can talk about these as limiting beliefs. Sometimes there's trauma. And I think one of the ways that our practice, in a sense, is expanded in our times is by including that, we might say, integration of psychological dimension and the traditional understanding of awakening. So that's part of awakening, and many of us have looked deeply in these areas. And this can also, at the personal level, it can lead us to also have a personal sense of vocation. What is my life about? What is my purpose? I think that's part of the contemporary path of awakening that isn't there in the traditional sense. That there is a, like a, per, a kind of personal path or purpose. This is what calls me. These are my gifts. This is what brings me forward. And then there's also the dimension, again, it's not really clarified much traditionally, that I think the contemporary path of awakening is also about cutting through social conditioning. Seeing the way that we've internalized the conditioning around gender and race and sexual orientation and age and 
physical appearance and all sorts of things. And we're just beginning to have a sense of how we integrate traditional practice with working through social conditioning. You know, and a lot of people these days are looking into that in terms of conditioning about, about race. But that's a whole way that awakening, I think, at least in terms of the path, maybe we, we get to a very similar place, but the path has these different elements. Another way I think that the contemporary path of awakening is different is that there's not just individual awakening, but I think there can very much be awakening at the level of a community or even a whole society. Some of you know that Thich Nhat Hanh said, the next Buddha will be a Sangha. Very interesting, right? That somehow we might say the mind of awakening, awakened awareness can be there in some way, Thich Nhat Hanh is implying, in what we might call intersubjective awareness. Again, not what the Buddha typically talked about. There are passages where he talks about something like that, but not a main focus. I think that's part of our time, and that there can be also a kind of awakening on a larger level. I mean, we can imagine what that might look like. What would, it look, what would the consciousness of a, of a society be like if we had a wide-ranging embracing in the vast majority of the society of sustainability and mitigation of the climate harm and all the action, if that was if that was as unified a response as the response has been in some places to the pandemic, not everywhere, of course, but you know, in my neighborhoods and probably in most of the Bay Area, it's a pretty good response. I mean, they're outliers, but it's um, when I walk around my neighborhoods in Berkeley, it seems mostly pretty good. There's a collective awareness there. And so I think that there, you know, we're talking about awakening on this in this collective way as well, which, of course, you can look back at history and see ways in which there have been something like collective awakening. So what I'm inviting and really asking for all of us, including myself, is to commit further to awakening. Really, really crucial at this time. What would it mean for you to bring your practice up one or two notches? What would that mean? How that looks is going to be very personal. For some people, it might say, I'll finally have a regular practice. For others, it might be, I'll have a second period of practice. For others, it might mean, I'll really make more of an effort in the application of awareness to my daily flow. For some, it might mean, I'm going to... Uh, I don't know, I'll do a half a day of retreat a, a week, whatever it is. But I'm asking you, and I want to leave a few moments right now, do you feel drawn to deepen your practice by what I'm calling a notch or two? If so, 
what would it look like for you? Just take 30 seconds or a minute and ask yourself, do I feel drawn in this way? And what would it look like for me to bring my practice of, of awakening up a notch or two? And as we deepen in the awakening process, we also, I think, access certain qualities of our being and of our minds, our hearts, that are crucial for these times. Uh, one aspect is I think we start accessing what we might call more visionary dimensions of our being, maybe coming through dreams or even visions. As we deepen, we start to go into these more archetypal levels of mind that bring tremendous creativity, that help us to clarify how do I continue to deepen individually and then bring my own unique gifts to what's needed right now. And then in terms of acting outwardly, again, I'm, I'm going to be pointing to the importance of bringing this to get these together, bringing that deepened commitment to awakening together with acting in whatever ways seem appropriate to you. We want to keep the inner practices going. So if you ask yourself, what form of response to, in whatever way, to the current crises, call me, or am I doing already that I want to continue or deepen? Just take again, take a moment. What kind of action calls me either to continue or maybe to start? And so in terms of this uh, connection of inner and outer practice, there's so much we could say. We could, take, uh, we could take the rest of the year and focus on that. And um, I explored a lot of that in my book, The Engaged Spiritual Life, focusing on the importance of mindfulness of the body, you know, ethical commitment, broadening the sense of ethics, working with intention, non-reactivity, being skillful with people with opposing views. There's a whole curriculum there. You know, and we could add to it just the ways of uh, deepening our practice, you know, as kind of an intermediate stage in the flow of our lives. And I, one of my colleagues named Greg Kramer just published a book called A Whole Life Path, Greg Kramer, K-R-A-M-E-R, -E very nice book uh, that 
bring, you know, suggest ways of bringing the process of awakening to all the parts of our lives, our activities, as well as just the daily flow. For some of us, we may be very inspired in terms of this connection of inner and outer by the figure of the Bodhisattva, you know, the, the being who uh, is committed to awakening, but also committed to helping others. It's a wonderful archetype for our times. You know, some of us may be especially inspired by other figures, maybe the Jewish prophets or Jesus or Gandhi or Dorothy Day or Dr. King or, uh, you know, uh, uh, Greta Thunberg. Um, so we may be inspired, but the Bodhisattva is a wonderful archetype for us that may really call you. You know, I, I didn't bring in, I have, oh, let's see, it's not, well, about three feet away, I have an image of Kuan Yin. I don't know if I can, I can't quite reach for it, but just know Kuan Yin is three feet away from me. And Kuan Yin is a, a archetype of compassion, right? And this is, uh, this is from the uh, Theravada understanding of the Bodhisattva from the fifth century. Crossed, I would cross others. Freed, I would free others. Tamed, I would tame others. Calmed, I would calm others. Comforted, I would comfort others. Attained to Nibbana, I would lead others to Nibbana. Purified, I would purify others. Enlightened, I would enlighten others. That's from the fifth century. Or this is uh, the, um, the Zen chant, which anyone who's practiced in a Zen center has repeated. Living beings are infinite, I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to cut through them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. The Buddha way is unsurpassable, I vow to realize it. Yay, Bodhisattva. So, um, and the Bodhisattva trains traditionally in what are called the paramis. Many of you know these these qualities in generosity and patience and in being ethical and mindfulness and uh, being truthful and developing loving kindness or metta, equanimity and so forth. And uh, maybe sometime we can give more focus on the bodhisattva. Uh, I love sometimes to do a whole bodhisattva ceremony. Maybe that's appropriate for our times to see the people, are you committed to take on the aspiration of a bodhisattva? And we could do a ceremony. Or you could do it without me. Anyway, um, it's a powerful area. And so, but this, I, I think also, just like there's, as it were, a new curriculum or an additional curriculum for awakening, I think there's also kind of an additional curriculum for people who want to bring their spiritual practice into the world. We need uh, further capacities, you know, and some of them we get from our practice. We need to have resilience with difficult emotions, you know, and mind states and body states. You know, uh, we need to have skill and resilience with fear and grief and uh, anxiety and uh, anger, 
and so forth, uh, with uh, the judgmental mind, with difficult body states, and so forth. We also need, I think, as a really foundational capacity, and this is, a, I'm suggesting these because I'm suggesting that those who want to deepen their outward practice, this is a good curriculum. You know, develop your ability further to be with difficult mind, body, heart states. Develop your capacities to engage in skillful speech. You know, and uh, I haven't taught on that here for a while, but at Spirit Rock, I've the last six Wednesdays that I've taught at Spirit Rock, I've taught on the foundations of wise speech, with the last four sessions being on how to uh, practice with difficulties or challenges that come up in our speech. So that material is out there if you want to work there. But I think there's a whole curriculum related to skillful speech, how to ground in the foundations and being present and cultivating empathy and following ethical guidelines uh, you know that would help us to engage with empathy in non-polarized discussions as much as possible with those with different uh, different views or opposed views and how do we build the container for those kind of discussions I think this is part of the curriculum for those who are engaging outwardly at this time Another area which is pretty undeveloped is the ability to navigate and respond skillfully to collective trauma. To know what to do with individual trauma, but also to know what happens when a whole field, a community, or part of a society is taken over by a kind of collective trauma, which I think is happening at times in our, in our world. There's a whole curriculum there of learning. We need to understand what we might call the dark night. I mentioned that earlier in terms of it being an interest of mine in terms of teaching. You know, the dark night is originally formulated in the Christian tradition by St. John of the Cross. We need people who know what it's like to be in a protracted, difficult time and keep the center, keep one center. That's part of the curriculum. We need to have people who really can do that. Those people are going to be the beacon. So I'm giving this curriculum. I'm hoping it inspires people. And maybe I'll ask how many want to sign up later. So you can think about that. Okay. Um, so knowing, you know, knowing how to work with protracted difficult times individually and collectively. And then how to connect around uh, and go across what we might call the boundaries of, uh, in terms of connecting with other people, how do, we, how do we connect in solidarity across the boundaries of race, age, gender, and so forth? Again, empathy is going to be a key capacity. And having done one's own inner work, with social conditioning is going to be very vital for, for anyone who does that. And then lastly, in terms of these capacities, I'm naming various kind of capacities that you don't find in the traditional teachings about awakening or engagement. A last one I want, I want to talk about, maybe it's there in some ways traditionally, 
is the ability to rest in paradox. How do you hold, how do we hold the ability to, through our practice at times, to touch our own joy, contentment, luminous being, and hold that at the same time that we know that there's tremendous suffering? How do we hold how do we hold the potential of the human spirit for love, wisdom, and kind of a, a brilliance of luminosity and creativity? How do we hold that while also acknowledging that over 210,000 people have died of this virus, probably the vast majority unnecessarily? How do we hold that? How do we hold something I read about just in the paper today, that there are, um, you know, that there are 29 million women and girls who are in a kind of modern slavery across the world. Did anyone read that in the Chronicle today? 29 million women and girls are in a kind of modern slavery, bondage you know, often uh, sexual slavery, right? How do we hold these realities of our world with also the fact that I personally can maybe have joy and contentment and touch, you know, have access to my own uh, luminous nature? I like uh, the poet Gary, Gary Snyder says, we have to act both as if our heads are on fire and if we have all the time in the world. We hold paradox. Knowing that nothing need be done is where we begin to move from, holding paradox. And then acting, you know, and finding, finding ways to act, acting and doing the inner work, finding where we're called, to act. Again, the invitation is if you feel like you need to do more, what is that? And maybe you're doing the right amount and to continue with that. And to know that uh, change is very mysterious. You know, that uh, we don't always know what's happening. We only can really do our best. You know, and a lot of times things aren't very clear. No one really knew that the Berlin Wall would fall or that apartheid would end. You know, or we could point to other ways have been, been great change. So let me finish and we can open things up for discussion. Two short quotations. The first is from a Zen teacher named Odo Sesho Roshi. And this is, uh, this is really about the combination of the inner and the outer work. He says in typical Zen style, in Zen, there are only two things. You sit and you sweep the garden. I'm taking that as a metaphor for acting in the world. You sit, you only do two things, you sit, and you sweep the garden. And then he says, it doesn't matter how big 
the garden is. Okay, that's my first quotation. And then secondly, from uh, the Jewish tradition, from the second century, Rabbi Tarfan says, it is not upon you to finish the work, neither are you free to desist from it. It is not upon you to finish the work, neither are you free to desist from it. So let me stop here. Maybe invite, let's just invite a minute or so just to sit and see what might have struck you, where your mind is going, any maybe uh, thoughts on how to both deepen an awakening practice and deepen in helping outwardly. Let's just sit for a minute or so. So thank you very much. Uh, that was my talk. I, it's the first time I've given this talk. I didn't know what I was going to talk about last night. I trusted that something would be clear. And about 20 seconds after I woke up this morning, I knew what I would talk about. That's how it happened. So... Yeah, let me invite... Uh, any reflections or questions, sharing? And I guess we have more than 25 people. So, uh, Bill, are, are you going to monitor maybe the raised hand function? Is that how we usually do it? Okay. Or just raise your hand physically. Yeah. Yeah, I can see Liz's hand. I can only see 25, though, at a time. We have more than 25. Liz, why don't you go and do the raised hand function. We can have a cue yes. if we have more than uh, we can see. Please, Liz. Thank you for a really wonderful talk, Donald. I really appreciate this talk. It really rings true. And um, I'm happy to say that I'm doing a lot of it, so I, I'm, I'm feeling good about it. I have to say that there is a rise of universal consciousness that I've probably not been able to access and probably that we haven't been able to access until this extraordinary ability to communicate across the world through Zoom. Mm. I've been on uh, probably five retreats since April where participants from all over the world have come and that's because of zoom and also to be exposed to many many teachers that i could not have been exposed to before uh, exposed to them daily hourly lots of it for free and my practice has deepened extraordinarily wow. because of this access yeah it's extraordinary 
And I listened to John Kevinson for three months every morning during the week. And there were more than 2,000 participants every morning. Mm. And lives were changed. And having the access to listen to these folks is extraordinary. Yeah. There's such a hunger for growth, for commitment, for love, and leadership, which we're finding because we have access to it now. 5,000 people tuned in to the Upaya Zen Center last weekend to work with Pema Chodron. Wow. 5,000 people from all over the world. So it's an extraordinary time of access. And, an ex- and it's so optimistic and thrilling to see these huge numbers of people who want this practice yeah. and who are willing to do it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much, Liz. Thanks for pointing uh, out that quality of what's happening now that, uh, again, uh, a lot, there are fruits of the pandemic. and Tremendous. I, I was actually part of a conference on collective trauma, maybe some of you were as well, that, t- that finished about a week ago, I think, and there were 100,000 people at that, I think from 100 countries. And so it's quite, quite something what's, what's going on. It's quite thrilling. Yeah. So thank you. It's really good to remember those really positive developments because if you just read the uh, news feed, it can get a little bit discouraging. So I didn't mention it, but a big practice for our times is having boundaries about how much news you take in. (laughs) See what's wise for you. Yeah. Um, Do we have others? I see Corey's hand up, but uh, do we have others, uh, Bill, on the queue? Yes, yes. Ellen uh, wants to ask a question. Maybe Ellen and then Corey. Okay. Uh, Ellen, you may be muted. Um, I don't see you right now, but we're not hearing you. I actually, um, that's why I raised my hand was for Ellen. She mentioned in the chat she was struggling to find the raise hand feature. So um, we'll see if she can figure out how to unmute. And in the meantime, I do have one quick thing, though, um, Donald, and that is um, right now, as trying as the times can be and as, um, you know, for instance, with the recent um, attempt at abducting a mayor, I mean, a a governor with with intention to kill her, um, with things so dire and seeming so dangerous it's um, sometimes it can be hard. I wonder if you can speak to um, faith and how maybe important faith is to um, to be able to have a commitment to awakening and action when it can seem like the threat is so large. Yeah. Yeah, I think whatever one calls it, faith or confidence, um, I think Joanna Macy has the the term active hope. 
whatever it is, but I think we, we really, really ask what gives us that faith or confidence. I think there are different uh, dimensions. I'll just name a few that occur to me, and we probably could name others. Um, one is uh, one is having the uh, understanding of the very process of awakening in our own being, and I think there and knowing how one one oneself has cut through or worked with successfully the various states of mind which lead to some of these outward uh, forms of even violence or attempted violence or polarization, we, we know that working with reactivity is possible, transforming reactivity is possible. So we can have a sense that with the right situation and tools, the, we gain access to the depths of what it means to be human. So it's really partly affirming the depths of being human are love and wisdom. And yet there is so much ignorance, right? So I think knowing the trajectory in one's own being is one source of that faith. Another source that occurs to me is actually studying the lives of people who inspire one, knowing what happened in similar challenging times. You know, study the lives of Gandhi and King. You'll find some very, very difficult moments. You'll find threats and actual violence, right? So studying what others did in difficult times and how some of the ways that uh, people could act. So I think a second source of faith is, I think, actually knowing history and knowing the lives, knowing how people have worked with uh, somewhat similar situations in the past. You know, so uh, we probably could think of others, but th those are the two that occur to me, that it's finding what gives one what builds some kind of uh, inspiration in the moment. Because I think, and again, this is where the awakening process is so important. If one is really deeply in the awakening process, then there's kind of an internal stability and equanimity that develops increasingly, no matter what's happening outwardly. Look at the life of uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, for example. He had to leave his country, right? You know, and or, so that's where against uh, those are the two main things that occur to me. Thank you, Ellen. Do we have you ready? You could speak up, uh, unmute, and speak up if if it works for you. Okay, thank you, Ellen. Um, others, do we have others uh, who have either physical hands up or working with the raised hands function under the participants? I have a question. Okay, this please. is Jan. Okay. I've unmuted myself. 
Okay. Um, I'm highly motivated right now because of the election. I've got a lot of actions taking place. I'm, yeah. you know, sitting with Sharon Salzberg and we get excited and we talk to each other and I'm not sure after November 3rd, I'll have that same focus. And I'm beginning to be concerned about that. Yeah, great, great uh, observation. So again, a few things occurred to me and probably we could have some, um, a lot of collective wisdom on that as well. Uh, let's see. Uh, first of all, we don't know what's going to happen exactly on November 3rd. You know, we may, uh, some of us may need to schedule um, uh, parties of dancing in the street for a month or two. So that, someone needs to do that. You could do that. <laughs> okay, you ready for that? Okay, so that might... I'm ready for that. Yeah, we don't, we don't know what will happen. Uh, that's one thing. And so, but I think it's, a, it's a actually a terrific point because, uh, you know, as many people have stressed, what's most important, if we think of how to resolve some of our crises, the election certainly is crucial and important. But if we're going to do further transformative work with the climate crisis or the crisis of racial justice or developing an economy that's sustainable or, you know, strengthening democracy, there's going to be a need, obviously, for ongoing work. And, you know, I know that uh, some of the people, uh, you know, I've heard certainly from people like Bernie Sanders and others that they're really holding the sense that they want to, uh, you know, their best case scenario is to have the election go as it were their way and then to really continue with mobilizing. So there'll be some people suggesting options where we could also uh, really think, what do I, you know, choose your issue. My issue is climate. There's going to be so much still to do there. So see where I, I would say, See where you're called, especially, and uh, there should be people who are setting up uh, different ways of uh, channeling energy and work in, you know, on a particular issue. It could, yeah, it could be one of the larger social issues. It could be something maybe more local. You know, I think everything is everything is important. Could be developing better climate education in the local schools, right? So many, many dimensions. I always think of uh, Joanna Macy has that uh, distinction of three ways that there can be a, a, a wholesale shift to a sustainable society. She talks about first the need for holding actions to prevent further damage, usual province of certain kind of activism, you know, a protest and so forth, stopping negative things from happening or continuing. But secondly, transforming the core institutions of the society. And thirdly, shifting consciousness. All of those are necessary for transformation that really holds and, and lasts. And so see what calls you. Maybe protest calls you. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe you're called to continue with your 
body work to teach people yoga or trauma healing. And that's very, very clearly part of the larger transformation. So not to have too narrow a sense of what's involved. It's really all the aspects of our life uh, will be shifted if we really respond skillfully to these different crises. Maybe time for one more before we want to move towards uh, closing. Yeah, uh, is that Lucia? Yes. Yeah. Hi, Dal. Hi. Nice to see you. Um, not sure exactly where I'm going with this comment and question, but you were talking about awakening. Yeah. And it's beginning to sound like a cliche. Like, I, throughout this whole entire crisis that we're going through, our national crisis, the, the, the medical crisis, everything, I don't, I feel isolated. Yeah. And of course I am because I'm having to shelter in place in Marin. And, but it's not so much that the physical isolation, but it's also that I don't know, I'm confused, and I'm not able to understand or to um it's like i said what you talk about awakening it felt like you were talking about some it, it was like a cliche like a a concept that had no meaning at all any yeah, longer yeah. because i'm so confused i'm so involved in moving from moment to moment, day to day, and I'm beginning to feel kind of wrung out from all of this. But I'm not sure where to go with a lot of this stuff. You know, I, the, thing that, the thing that I'm most concerned about is racial justice. Yeah. But I don't know where to go to help. I don't know... I think what I can do is in, investigate my own feelings and thoughts about it. Yeah. But, and I know where I stand, but I'm not sure what I can do about it. Yeah. So I'm feeling a lot, I'm feeling a great deal of confusion about, you know, my role the contact in the world, yeah, uh, the isolation, the fears, the anxieties, yeah, and um, so uh, anyway, I really do appreciate being here tonight. It's it's awfully nice to see everybody and to hear your your talk. Thank you. Th thanks, Lucia. Um, thanks for being so so honest and in a way uh, vulnerable with uh, what you're experiencing um, uh -huh. in the way that, you know, right now, me talking about awakening doesn't, doesn't uh, resonate so much. Um, uh -huh. So I, I think I have uh, maybe two questions to ask you. Uh, 
Uh, one is, do you have a sense of how to feel more connected? I don't, I don't need a long answer, but just a yes or no is okay. Now, not really, no. no not really. Yeah. Yeah, so that's something to look at, because I think that sense of being held by the community would and having friends and other members of the community who are who see their lives as a significant part about awakening is important. So having those connections, but it is hard. I mean, I, um, you know, it could be that maybe like uh, you take advantage of some of the options more like Liz was talking about, connect in that way or to connect personally with, uh, you know, I remember talking with one friend who lives alone and, and, I was talking with her and she said, maybe I should just every day have one meaningful conversation with someone else. That, uh -huh. that would make a big difference. Just that one thing, uh -huh. right? Like that. And then the second uh, point is in terms of awakening, we don't necessarily have to use that word. I would say one way you can ask about awakening is to ask, do I have a sense of my edge or edges of learning, where I'm learning. And I think you named at least one, which is that learning about racial conditioning, that's a part of what's calling you now, right? Mm -hmm. Even if action is unclear, but as I mentioned in kind of outlining the uh, contemporary curriculum of awakening, learning and working through one's own conditioning, not necessarily acting at the same time, is part of the process of awakening. Mm -hmm. So I think you're interested in that, you're doing that. So I think ask, you know, maybe substitute for the word awakening, substitute, where do I feel called to learn or to develop mm -hmm. more or cut through this or that? That's the same thing as what I'm calling awakening. Uh-huh. And, and you're doing that. Yeah. So I think you're, as far as I'm concerned, maybe you want to do more, but as far, you know, but at least in part, you are engaged in awakening when you look at racial conditioning right mm -hmm. now. So. And I have to examine my own conscience around that too. Yeah. You know, what is really true for me? That's right. It's been, it's been an issue that's, that's been a part of my life since I was a small child. I think for all of us, very, very similar. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so I, I think I would reframe awakening maybe just in terms of learning that excites you, that calls mm -hmm. you, and that helps you maybe to, to cut through something that, you know, cut through mm -hmm. a stuck place or go into a new territory and learn to see your conditioning more clearly. That's part of awakening. Yeah. Thank you very much, Donald. Yeah, you're very welcome. So I think we're ready for the the meta cards, or the is any are you is anyone holding that uh, bill please? Meta for Patty dealing with skin cancer. Uh, meta for Karina's mom, Irma, who is uh, whose dementia is progressing. Meta for Fran as she approaches the end of her life. Meta to Ed, starting chemo for stomach cancer this week. 
Meta for Suzanne, who's struggling with PTSD from losing her husband suddenly. Mm. Meta for Mary's sister, Kathleen, who has had growth in her cancer and will go back on a stronger chemo infusion rather than oral chemo. Meta for Mary Kelly, who is recovering. Meta for all those who are anxious and afraid. Meta for a friend, Therese, who lost her good friend to COVID. Thank you, Bill. And may we, uh, may we hold all of these kind wishes. May we just hold those for a moment. And I'll close, we'll close with uh, an expansion of that meta and then the dedication of merit. And I also just want to thank everyone in advance for the, the Donna support for Marin Sangha and also for my own, my own teaching. I want to thank you for that. So let that energy of metta from hearing those individual wishes. Let that be in your heart and see if you can feel an energy in the heart of kindness, of compassion. And feel that energy move outward. Feel it move to your left and right, front and back above and below, filling the space in which you are, letting the space of your room or home or maybe someone outside, letting that space be filled with the energy of kindness. dwelling in the space of kindness and let that kindness now move beyond the room, the home, out into the world in these six directions, left and right, front and back, above and below, coming out from the heart, bringing friendliness, kindness, warmth to all beings going outward in all directions. And may we offer to all beings the benefits of our evening, knowing that those benefits also come to us. We are part of all beings. And coming back and being present where we are. And may our awakening and may our response to our world go hand in hand 
as we deepen in, in both and in their connection. Thank you so much, everyone. It's a, it's a pleasure. And I always say I, I, always could, I could stay and talk for another hour, but it's time. <laughs> so we can all uh, unmute if you'd like and say goodbye to each other. Good to see everybody. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you, Thank you. Donald. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Donald. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Hey, everyone. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Barbara. Thank you, Mary. Thank you, Corey. Thank you, Donald. <laughs> Do you have a title for the talk? Awakening in a Time of Crisis. <laughs> Thank you. Thank I might you. take you up on that Bodhisattva ceremony. Okay. <laughs> we can do it sometime. Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye.